Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure we're ready to focus and concentrate. We're in fellowship and ready to study the word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we continue to be thankful for the fact that we live in this country and that we have the freedoms that we do. Father, we pray that you would just continue to preserve and protect this nation, that we may still be a a nation that stands firm in support of Israel and a nation that continues to send out missionaries throughout the world uh, to continue to take the gospel to those who uh, need to hear the truth, need to hear the gospel, need to understand that Christ has died for their for their sins. Father, we're thankful that we can be here this evening. We're thankful we have your word that enables us to understand your plans and purposes for mankind and your plans and purposes for us. And we pray that as we study this evening, you'll help us to get a, gain a greater understanding of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in Acts and we're moving ahead at a little bit of a slow pace, just initially picking up a few things that need to be covered that we will hit again and again as we go through Acts each time I want to build on what we've done before. Now, as I've pointed out initially, as Paul, I mean, as Luke opens up Acts, he addresses it to the same person to whom the gospel was addressed, a man by the name of Theophilus. And so this is really the Gospel of Luke Part 2, or the Gospel of Luke is Acts Part 1. It's all just Part 1 and Part 2 of the same uh, same story, the same writer. And so as Luke is writing to Theophilus, especially at the beginning, there are terms, phrases, things that uh, are used that assume that we know something from having already read Part one. And that's true with the phrase we're going to run into this evening. So as we've gone through this initially, we've seen that he summarizes what he has written already by saying that he wrote about what Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. And to these, that is, to these apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. And in the last lesson, I focused on that, focused on sort of an introduction to the doctrine of apologetics and the principle that God never does anything in private that he doesn't validate or authenticate in public. This completely destroys any concept of mysticism, which is so popular in many in many false religions, and, and it leaks into Christianity in a lot of different ways in what I refer to usually as sort of a soft mysticism. And you'll hear, sometimes hear people, sometimes it's just, uh, they've just picked up the phraseology from um, just sort of a sloppy way of thinking. Sometimes they, uh, it's a little more than that, but they'll talk about how the Holy Spirit spoke to them or Jesus spoke to them or the Lord spoke to them to do something or to do uh, something else. And that is just this private communication that is a soft form of mysticism that's not open to any sort of validation. In the early church, whenever God revealed his word, and in the New Testament, as the New Testament epistles are, are given, they are validated and authenticated by the apostles. And even though Luke was not an apostle, he was the associate of the apostle Paul and wrote sort of under his, uh, under his uh, guidance and under his supervision. So the principle is that God 
doesn't operate in merely a subjective or private sense. There's always an objective validation. There are always, as it were, checks and balances so that we can know whether God has spoken. This is true. Uh, tests for, for prophets were laid down in the Old Testament uh, and uh, as well as in the New. So there are these convincing proofs, evidences for the truth of Christianity. And then uh, Luke goes on to say that Jesus appeared to them over a period of 40 days. Now that 40 days takes place from the from the day of the resurrection, the Feast of First Fruits, to Pentecost. F- Pentecost was 50 days after uh, the uh, after Passover, and so there's a period of 10 days left over between the ascension and uh, the day of Pentecost when the church actually began. And during that time, he was giving instructions and he was teaching the uh, uh, the apostles things concerning the kingdom of God. And this is a phrase that there's a lot of discussion about, a lot of controversy over. There's been a lot of debates over just the meaning of this phrase, kingdom of God. And because it comes up a few more times in Acts and is fundamental to understanding, I think, the ministry of Peter and John and the apostles in the first section of Acts, when there is still a heavy Jewish emphasis then we have to understand what is going on with this phrase, the kingdom of God. The term kingdom, the Greek word that's used, is a word basileia, and it refers to a royal administration or ruling over an entity. So it always involves the authority to rule. It always involves a a group of people who are uh, ruled over, and it involves a... Um, it involves the ruler himself. And so these three things have to come together in order for there to be a kingdom. And so this is the same word that is used in many previous passages. So tonight what I want to do is start looking at this concept of the kingdom of God. It's a little too much to handle all in one night, so we're going to have a part one and a part two. And just to try to come to grips with some of the issues related to the kingdom of God and how this is going to be important for understanding, especially the next uh, eight chapters. So we'll begin by looking at the term. Under point one, we have the usage of this term. Now, usage is important sometimes. It's just one of those statistical things to look at how often a word is used and how it's spread out over the um, over the New Testament and what it's uh, what it's. Uh, uh, how it's used in terms of its proportionality. Is there any particular kind of emphasis? The word is used 33 times, or the phrase the kingdom of God occurs 33 times in the Gospel of Luke. Now, we always, we're going to spend a lot of time looking at Luke because that is, this is a summary of what Luke had said in the Gospel. And so Theophilus would have read that. This would have given him the background he needed to be, under, to be able to understand uh, what the kingdom of God was that, um, that Luke was describing here. So it's used 33 times. That's a lot for a phrase to be used. And we also have the word just, just the word kingdom used another 12 times. So that's 45 times you have a reference to the kingdom in the Gospel of Luke. But in Acts, notice there's a shift. In Acts, it's only used seven times. Most of that is in the early part of of Acts. One time you have just the word kingdom. And it's spread out. uh, Most of it's at the beginning, but when we come to the end in Acts chapter 28, we hear that the uh, teaching of the apostles concerning the kingdom of God continue to expand. So there's this thread that runs through Acts related to the uh, things, the doctrines concerning the kingdom. Now, just why is that uh, so important? The, the word or the phrase kingdom of God is used 70 times in the New Testament. And um, kingdom is used, the word just kingdom itself is used 158 times in the New Testament. But when we break that down, we see that uh, 127 times it's used in the gospel. So the emphasis 
And this word is in the Gospels, not so much in the epistles. It's used um, uh, 31 times. Um, I think it's 31 times in the Gospels. I don't know what non got in there. It's used 31 times in the Gospels, 19 times in the epistles, and five times in Revelation. So the spread, the emphasis is really in the um, in the other Gospels. Uh, in Matthew, the, the phrase kingdom is used 55 times. Uh, you also have the phrase kingdom of heaven. And that's another thing that has to be uh, investigated is, is there a difference between the phrase kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven? And old, some older dispensationalists used to stress that there was a difference between the two. However, the phrase kingdom of heaven was only used by Matthew. And in parallel passages in Mark and in Luke, you have Mark and Luke using the phrase kingdom of God rather than kingdom of heaven. And so it doesn't appear that there really is a significance to the difference other than in relationship to the audience to whom Matthew was writing. Now, Matthew is writing a gospel that is primarily oriented to a Jewish audience to answer the question if Jesus was really the Messiah, why didn't the kingdom come in? Most of the time when we hear people talk about Matthew, the focus is Matthew is writing to present Jesus as the Messiah, as the king. He's doing that, but he's even more so he's answering the question, because Jesus is the Messiah, the expected king, why didn't the kingdom come in? And one of the phrases that's used from the Old Testament related to uh, the kingdom has to do with the kingdom of heaven. So this would have had uh, significance more for a Jewish audience uh, than a, a Gentile audience. So just in terms of this initial point, we see that the term or the phrase, the kingdom of God, is a phrase that's used primarily in the Gospels and not so much in later on in the epistles, although it is mentioned in the epistles and a few times in Revelation. Some of these references don't refer to the kingdom of uh, uh, the millennial kingdom, so we have to look at those in a little more detail. Now, if you're going to understand this word, where, why, where would you go to figure out, if you were Theophilus, what this word meant? Well, you would go back to to Luke, to what Luke had already written concerning the uh, birth and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so why don't we follow that pattern and just go back to Luke chapter 1 and begin to look at the the framework, what the the background is to this word within the context within the context of the gospel of Luke and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first phrase that the first time that we find the word or the phrase is in uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 33. And this is in a very important context, one that um, is significant, especially this kind of year as uh, Christmas is approaching. It is in the announcement by the angel Gabriel to Mary concerning the fact that she would uh, soon give birth to a son and the role in the ministry of that son. So the angel begins to speak to her in verse 30. So don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so this initial announcement that tells us about the role and the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ is important because it focuses on uh, two aspects of, of a kingdom, the throne and the operation of the authority, which is reigning over over a people. And we from the very beginning, we see that he is given the throne of his father, David. And so that tells us that we have to look even further back in order to get an understanding of, of the significance of his kingdom to go back into the Old Testament, go back to David 
And we'll see that we have to go back to the Davidic covenant and then the promises that are made subsequent to the Davidic covenant that in the Old Testament that all point to a ruling and reigning Messiah, that he's going to bring in this glorious kingdom. And so when uh, Gabriel announces this to, to Mary, she already has a frame of reference for understanding what, he, what the angel's talking about because of her knowledge of the Old Testament. And we'll see that that is important for understanding uh, the way this is used um, uh, in, the, in, uh, in the Gospels. Now, the first thing that, uh, that Gabriel said was that he would be called Yeshua in the Hebrew. And Yeshua comes from the Hebrew verb yasha, which means to deliver or to save. It's the same root as in the name Joshua. And so this indicates his purpose in his human life, that he has come to save uh, his people. And, and the announcement will say that he, go, he has come to save his people from, uh, from their sins. Second, Gabriel says that he would be great, that he would be uh, magnified. His third, he says that he would be called the Son of the Most High. Now, this is really important to understand because the phrase Most High uh, in the Septuagint, uses the Greek, same Greek word here, hupisto, hupsisto rather, uh, which is normally used in the Septuagint to translate the phrase Elion. El Elion was a title, God the Most High, uh, in the Hebrew and indicates a full deity. Now, when you add son of in front of this, this is a typical, uh, this is a typical Jewish or Hebrew idiom indicating not who one's father was. That's not the significance of it. It's not like, well, who's your daddy? Well, his daddy's the most high. But the point is that, that, the, um, that he has the same identical characteristics as the most high. So you had this idiom in, uh, in Hebrew where if someone was a fool, they would be said to participate in the characteristics of a fool, or they would be called a son of a fool. If they were a murderer, they would be called a son of a murderer. If they were a liar, they'd be called a son of a liar. They're not talking about their, uh, their parent. They're talking about the, these characteristics. So when Jesus is called the son of God, it's not just talking about or emphasizing the fact that that he has secondary or derivative deity, that he was born or that there was a time when uh, Christ was not or the second person of the Trinity was not. That was the old uh, fourth century heresy by uh, Arius that Jesus or the second person of the Trinity came into existence sometime in eternity past. The idea of expressing this as son of God indicates that he is fully God. He participates in all of the characteristics, all of the attributes of God, just as the son of a murderer would participate in all of the characteristics of a murderer. It's an adjectival expression. So son of the Most High indicates that Jesus, uh, this son, would have all of the characteristics or the attributes of the one who is the Most High. Now, in a little later on this evening, I'm going to come back to the term son of man. And in the phrase son of man, you have that same emphasis that he is full humanity. So these phrases, son of God and son of man, are titles that talk about the attributes and characteristics that are very special to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's called, the angel says, he will be called the son of the most high. And then fourth, he states that he will be given the throne of his father, David. Now, that is important because of the promise that God made to David in the Davidic covenant that his uh, dynasty would be established forever, his throne would be established forever, and the kingdom would be established forever. And the only way you can have an eternal throne, eternal dynasty, and eternal kingdom is if there is a person who rules, who is eternal, who will not die. And so this is a first hint or foreshadowing of the fact that the person who will reign on the throne of David will be something other than a finite human. He will be eternal. So he will be given the throne of his father David. That takes us back to the Davidic covenant and promise in Second Samuel chapter 7, uh, and then also in Psalm 89, uh, verses 3 and 4, and Psalm 89, 28 and 29. These, uh, these verses in, in the Psalm 89 is a meditation on uh, the Davidic covenant.
And then fourth, we're told that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. House of Jacob is an alternate name for, for Israel. Jacob was given the name Israel by God uh, later in life after he wrestled with the angel at, at Peniel on his return back to the land after his years up north uh, with Laban. But when um, uh, Jacob is dying and he gives a um, sort of a, um, a prophecy for each of his sons, he makes the following statement concerning uh, one son, Judah. He says, A scepter shall not depart from Judah, this, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, Shiloh being a term that alludes to the Messiah. And to him shall be the obedience of his people. So this is the first real hint of a ruler of an ongoing ruler and a kingdom, that the scepter will not depart from uh, the tribe of Judah. And so this indicates, again, this eternality of this kingdom. And then the last thing that the angel said is that his kingdom will never end, also a reference back to the key passage for the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel chapter 7, uh, verses 13 through 16. So the first time we have the idea of the kingdom mentioned or the word kingdom mentioned in Luke is in the announcement on the birth of Jesus by the angel uh, angel Gabriel and clear, makes it clear that he's going to come and he's going to rule over a physical kingdom that is connected to the kingdom of David. Now, if you're Jewish and you're thinking at this time and you're, you, you hear this and you hear about the kingdom of David, what are you going to think about? What's going to be your frame of reference? You're going to think about a physical, geographical, social, economic kingdom that was on the earth that was just like that, only greater than what David and Solomon had had, that it would take what they had had and go to the fullest extent. And if you're aware of the of the land promises, you knew that uh, Israel had never fully controlled all of the land uh, that God had promised to Abraham and that the kingdom would have to uh, expand in that particular way. So this takes you back to a literal understanding of the, of the kingdom. Now I'll come back to why that's important in just a minute. Now the second use of kingdom in the Gospel of Luke is found in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, we read, but he said to them, and this is Jesus talking to his disciples, he said, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. Now, the other cities that he's speaking about here are cities in Galilee and cities in Judea. He's not talking about uh, proclaiming the kingdom outside of Israel. So he's taking this kingdom message, and it's focused on the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's focused on Israel. It's not focused on the Gentiles. We'll look at that in more detail probably next week when we go through the uh, gospel at about, probably about three or four key passages to understand the significance of the gospel. I mean, it's emphasis, the understanding the emphasis of the kingdom of God. So now we ask the question, so what is the kingdom of God? That's really the $64,000 question, although with inflation we're probably talking about a $6.4 million question now. What exactly is the kingdom of God? Now, this is a term that has really been bandied about both within what I would call strict evangelicalism. Those of you who've been around a while, we went through Revelation, you know uh, the significance of the phrase kingdom in relationship to the millennium. And we have three basic views in terms of the timing of Christ's return in relationship to the millennial kingdom in terms of post-millennialism, amillennialism, and premillennialism. And I'll put a chart up on that next time. But outside of Christianity, you have what I call various um, false ideas and false, and, and false philosophies that have been influenced by Christianity but they have really distorted and warped the idea of a kingdom so that it basically becomes some sort of utopic idea. This especially happened in the 19th century as a result of the influence of, of uh, what we usually refer to as 19th century 
religious or Protestant liberalism that came out of Europe. The kingdom became, the term kingdom of God became shifted away from its historical literal roots in the Old Testament to refer to something uh, either spiritual, uh, something that was subjective, or something that was a socioeconomic kingdom that man would bring in through his own efforts. So I wanted to just summarize some of the false uh, concepts we run into. The first is that the phrase kingdom of God is simply a synonym for heaven, that it's just a synonym for the eternal state, and that in this view there's really no physical or material aspect to it. Jesus isn't going to come back to Jerusalem. He's not going to sit on the literal throne of David. He's not going to rule over a specific space-time kingdom. There won't be any of that. Jesus is just off there in heaven somewhere, and the kingdom just refers to going to heaven. That's all, all it refers to. So this this really plays havoc with understanding or interpreting the scriptures. If it means if the kingdom meant a literal kingdom at one time and now it means something else, then how do you ever find any kind of stability in your understanding of scripture? It starts to just mean whatever anybody wants it to mean. The second false concept is the idea that this refers to a purely earthly socioeconomic uh, utopia brought in through human means. Uh, Marx picked up on this idea of this uh, utopic state, and he sort of massages it and brings it into his uh, Marxist philosophy that eventually uh, the workers will overcome the capitalists and bring in the utopic state. And that's where he picks up this idea. He borrows, only Christianity has a linear view of history. And by that I mean only biblical Christianity, only from a Judeo-Christian perspective, does history have a planned purpose and it's going somewhere where there will be an actual end. In all pagan views of history, history is primarily cyclical or things just happen. It's random, but there's no direction to it. So you get into some philosophies like Marxism that borrow this directionality from uh, Christianity and then they fit it within their own uh, own warped system. So this is a kingdom idea. This gets picked up in what it was called the social gospel movement at the end of the 19th century. And that what in, in liberal theology, in the social gospel movement, you p- start to pick up socialistic ideas, uh, ideas for social justice, uh, pick up various Marxist ideas, and the idea that the role of the church is to bring in the kingdom. Now, this is a liberal post-millennial view rather than a conservative uh, post-millennial view. By conservative post-millennial view, I'm referring to uh, evangelicals who believe in the Bible that it's the literal word of God. They would be mostly correct. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt on salvation and some other things, but they just believe that Jesus comes at the end of the uh, of the millennium, and the church will bring it in, but it's done through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not a manipulative thing. But in the liberal view of, of post-millennialism, uh, it is done through government, um, through the use of government. It's done through social programs. The church's primary mission is to uh, is to solve the problems of poverty, solve the problems of disease. It fits. It, com- it, it comes out of the late 19th century, and it fits within the uh, rise of progressivism uh, that is taking place at the same time. All of these different ideas sort of merge together, and it and it has borrows this idea of a, a future perfect state from Christianity, but then it twists it into something that's different. So this uh, looks at a, a, a perfect, uh, utopic uh, state that sometime in the future. Uh, another view of the kingdom of God looks at it just in terms of a nationalist hope for Israel, just a net pure, pure nationalist movement on the, for the establishment of the state of Israel. doesn't have anything to do with their the their future regeneration. There's no spiritual dimension to it at all. It's just a nationalist movement uh, for establishing the state of Israel. And then another view that you will run into among some uh, evangelicals is that the kingdom of of God refers to the visible uh, organized church 
By that I mean anyone who claims to be a Christian. And this would include both unbelievers and believers. It's just a visible organized church. So on any given Sunday morning, you have uh, five or 6,000 people going to any particular church. Some of them may be uh, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of them may not be, but that's they're all part of the manifestation of the kingdom of God today. And this is based on uh, interpretation of the parable of the uh, of the wheat and the tares. So this is also a uh, a wrong view of the idea of the of the kingdom. And then you have another view, which is that the kingdom of God is just a spiritual kingdom uh, where Christ rules in the hearts of men. There's no literal physical kingdom whatsoever. It is just this sort of. Uh, uh, Christ is ruling from heaven and he's ruling through the hearts of men today until eventually uh, he returns. So these are just um, five different false concepts you'll run into. Sometimes you'll, these will be mixed, kind of mixed together. So, but those are the basic, basic ones. Now, if we're going to think about a kingdom, there's some basic inherent concepts, three key things that are part of the idea of having a kingdom. The first thing is the right to rule. There is the right to rule or the uh, authority, the sovereignty, or the dominion of the ruler over a domain. So the first thing you have is there's a right to rule. There is authority. It may not be exercised yet, but what you just have is the authority that is given to a, a ruler. For example, in Luke 19, verses 11 to 17, we have a parable that Jesus tells of a nobleman who goes off to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then he will return. So he's given the authority when he goes off to the far country, but he does he only has the authority he doesn't have the kingdom or the domain yet until he returns and that's a very important parable for understanding the principle and we'll look at it in a little more detail next time to understand the principle that the the king that Jesus would leave is what because that's what he's talking about Jesus is going to leave and go go to heaven in the ascension and that he will when he is gone he will be given the authority, but it is not until he returns and exercises that authority that you have the kingdom. So this is an important parable for understanding that we're not in any form of the kingdom today, that the kingdom is something that is that is future. And so the idea of this is simply someone is invested with the authority to rule, but they're not exercising it yet. So the first thing is they, that we have in the phrase kingdom is the idea of a right to rule. The second thing that you have to have to have a kingdom is a domain or a realm. You have a right to rule, and then you have a realm or you have people to rule over. There are subjects to the authority. The realm is composed of people. Passages such as Matthew 21:43 and Mark 1:15 talk about the people that will be in the kingdom or the people that won't be in the kingdom, but the kingdom will be composed of a of a citizenry. There are people of the kingdom, so the realm is composed of people, and then in Acts 1:6 which is part of our passage for understanding this. The disciples are, after these 40 days where Jesus has been talking to them concerning the things of the kingdom, the disciples say, well, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, the Lord doesn't answer that. Uh, he doesn't say, no, you're wrong. There's not going to be a kingdom. Or he doesn't say, well, don't you know your, the uh, kingdom is spiritual and it's ruling in your hearts already. He says it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. He's, so he's not restoring the kingdom at that time. But what, that, what I want to bring out of that verse right now is that this, this kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about is a, is a restoration 
or a reestablishment of a previously existing kingdom. It's got a connection to something that had already happened in the past. So they're connecting it to the historic rule of the house of David in the Old Testament. Now, the next thing that we see is that uh, it's a realm that is ruled in reality. Okay, so we have the right to rule, and then the domain of the realm that's ruled, in other words, the citizenry, and then third, a realm that is ruled in reality. In other words, it's not just a potential or possible rule. When the nobleman goes off to a far country and is invested with the authority, it's not until it is activated or exercised that you have a kingdom. When, and that was, that whole parable was really based on a real historical situation when Herod Antipas went to Rome after the death of Herod to, to get the authority to come back and rule because the Herod's will was all mixed, uh, messed up. And so he goes and he's given the authority, but it's not until he returned that he, and he exercises authority that you really have the operation of a kingdom. So you have to have these three things in place before you have, um, before you have an actual uh, kingdom. Now, all of that just helps us to understand that you have to have a ruler with authority. He has to exercise the authority over a group of people. Now, the next thing we have to understand about the kingdom of God is that you have two different ways in which this is discussed in Scripture. This just makes it a little more confusing. So you always have to look at the context and think about what's going on here before you uh, can come to these conclusions. The first is that it refers to the eternal, timeless authority of God over creation. That God is sovereign. When we talk about the essence of God, the first thing we talk about is God is sovereign. He rules over his creation. That's part of his, uh, part of his authority as the creator. And that is the eternal, timeless authority of God over his creation. But within human history, you have the manifestation of God's rule and what we refer to as a theocracy, which literally means the rule of God over his people. It's a, it's a direct rulership of God over his people. And there are two periods in the Old Testament when you have a direct authority or direct theocracy. One is in the Garden of Eden, and the other is in uh, the early history of Israel from the time of Mount Sinai until you get to First uh, Samuel chapter 8, when uh, uh, Israel rejected the rulership of God and wanted to have a king like all of the other nations. So you have these two ways in which the term king is used. First of all, I want to point out that it's timeless. And I give you a number of scriptures that emphasize the fact that this is an eternal kingdom. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. Uh, Psalm 74.12, uh, the first was Psalm 10.16, the second is Psalm 74.12, For God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Now, this is not related to the idea of the Davidic kingship. This is just related to God's general rulership authority over his creation. Uh, another verse is Jeremiah 10, verse 10, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth will tremble, and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation, decaying his authority over, over the nations. Psalm 10, 16, 74, 12, and Jeremiah 10, 10. Another verse, Psalm 145, 13, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. See, it's not bounded by by time. Your kingdom is an everlasting uh, kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. In Lamentations 5.19, Jeremiah says, You, O Lord, remain forever your throne from generation to generation. So the throne here is not talking about the Davidic throne. It's talking about the throne of God the Father in heaven. Now, this is a universal reign. It's not limited to a reign over the house of Israel and the house of Judah, which was the 
uh, reign of the Davidic king. First uh, Chronicles 19.11, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over it. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. So you have the universal authority of God over his, over his creation. Then Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Uh, Psalm 139, 7 uh, through 10, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Focusing on the omnipresence of God. If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, and Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God is omnipresent, and so his kingdom extends to everything in his creation. Now, Daniel is really interesting. Daniel chapter 4 has two or three key statements made, and remember this is the chapter where uh, God cha- uh, challenged the arrogance of Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar uh, thought that he was the great ruler, that he had all of this power from his own effort, and so God humbled him by turning him into uh, basically an animal for seven years, and he lived out in the pasture, and he ate grass, and he was uh, he had basically lost his mind for those that seven-year period. And so... The purpose of this was to teach Nebuchadnezzar that he ruled by the authority of God, that he might have been born to his father Nabopolassar, he might have won great military victories, he might have extended the king, his kingdom uh, beyond anyone else, but it was all because of the, the grace of God. So Daniel 4.17 states, This decision, that is the decision to reduce him to the state of an animal, is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. So this is the overall universal rulership of God the Father. Verse 25, They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven. And seven times or seven years will pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. So no ruler, whether they're elected by a democratic election or whether they're appointed in some other fashion, no ruler rules unless it is under the uh, sovereign will of God. And then in Daniel 4.32, again, repeats this same thing we saw in the previous verse that you may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And in Amos 9.2, Though they dig into hell, Sheol, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. All this to emphasize the rule of God is timeless and universal. That's one meaning of the word kingdom. So if we chart this out, We have this sense of the kingdom of God that is the universal sovereign rule of God over his creation. So this, from from, uh, all time, God is the sovereign God. Then when we introduce a timeline uh, with the various uh, um, vertical marks there indicating different dispensations, we have... um, from the creation in Eden, Mount Sinai, then we have the church age in the period uh, to the right of the cross, a short period for the tribulation, the millennium, and then on into eternity future. We have two periods of a theocratic kingdom where there is a physical rulership of God on the earth, that one is in the Garden of Eden until Adam sins, and the other is uh, after Mount Sinai with the Mosaic Law, and this extends up until 2 Samuel chapter 8. And in 2 Samuel chapter 8, there is this revolt by uh, the Israelites against the rulership of God. And they said, we want to have a king like everybody else. They went to Samuel and they said, Samuel, uh, we don't want this situation anymore. We want to have a king like anyone else. And so 
Samuel feels terrible. He takes it personally. He feels rejected. And he goes whining to God. And God told Samuel, basically, uh, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Now, here's the warning for them. If they get a king, then that king is going to uh, raise their taxes. And he's going to uh, draft their young men into the army. And he's going to do all these other things. And it's one of the most significant political treatises in all of all of the uh, Bible against the dangers of a strong uh, strong government and what can happen when you have a government that uh, operates on its own terms and doesn't serve the people. So th- those are the two periods of the theocratic kingdom. Then we have another period th- th- that is described by Jesus in these parables in Matthew uh, 13, the parable of the sower, the parable of the wheat and the tares, the, the parable of the uh, pearl of great price, and several others. And they all talk about different mysteries of the kingdom. Now, what's important to understand here, and we're going to go into this in the Luke, Luke passage uh, next time, is that in some English translations, it translates it the, a mystery form of the kingdom. What kingdom are they talking about? Well, they're talking about the Davidic kingdom, so the Messianic kingdom. So are we talking about a form of the kingdom, or are we just talking about previously undisclosed information about the kingdom? And that's what I believe Jesus is saying. the, The word form isn't in the Greek. He's talking about mysteries or something. I'm going to tell you something about the kingdom that hasn't been disclosed. And what he's revealing at that point is that the kingdom's being postponed because in the previous chapter, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had accused him of using the power of Satan to do, to do all of his miracles. And this indicated the ultimate rejection by the people of the offer of the kingdom. And so now starting in Matthew 13, Jesus begins to uh, cloak his teaching in parables so that those who are negative won't understand what he's talking about, and those who are positive will uh, understand, respond to the truth. And now he's going to talk about the fact that before the kingdom comes, some other things are going to happen. And he's going to describe the characteristics of the intervening period of time between uh, the time of the ascension and the time that he returns and establishes, uh, establishes his kingdom. So this is the period of the mysteries the church age. And then when Jesus returns at the second advent, he will establish a his kingdom. This is when you have uh, a king who's been given the authority by God to rule. You have the people over whom he will rule, that is those who have believed in the gospel. And you have a domain, which is the uh, the land that God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the 12 tribes are given their new allotments in the millennial kingdom based on uh, the divisions given in uh, Ezekiel chapters 40, 41, and 42. So then you have the last phase of the eternal kingdom, the eternal theocratic kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. So... As I pointed out before, the kingdom is expressed in this theocratic form in the Mosaic law, the rejection of the king in 1 Samuel 8. And then you have the provision of an eternal dynastic ruler. And that's really the foundation for understanding all the prophecies in the Old Testament that point to a future Jewish kingdom, a future kingdom that is ruled from Jerusalem by this person that is referred to as the Messiah. Now, the use of the word Mashiach, which is the Hebrew word for Messiah, which means anointed or appointed one, and it's uh, translated into Greek with the Greek word for uh, anointed or appointed one, Christos. That's why we refer to Jesus, Jesus HaChristos, Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah, uh, Yeshua HaMashiach is the Hebrew that this this term emphasizes Jesus as that anointed one, but that that the use of the phrase Mashiach for for this Davidic ruler is limited to only four or five six passages in the Old Testament. 
that, that doesn't diminish it or its significance, but he is usually referred to in terms of his role as the son of David and as the, the root of Jesse, uh, as the one who comes from the root of Jesse, the one who will fulfill this Davidic covenant. So the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel chapter 7 is extremely important. So the sixth point then is this prediction of an eternal ruler. So let's turn for just a little bit back to the Old Testament to Second Samuel chapter 7. Now I just find it so interesting that if we don't have a, a if we're not grounded well in the Old Testament, then it's very difficult to understand a lot of things that are going on in the New Testament because it's assumed by the gospel writers, assumed by Jesus when he comes, that the, he's speaking to the Jewish people that they have a grasp of all of the Old Testament. So God is going to enter into a covenant with David, and he addresses David through through Nathan, instructs Nathan to go and tell um, tell David, uh, instruct David that David's desire at this time was to build a temple. But God says, no, I'm not going to let you build a house for me. Instead, I am going to uh, build a house for you or a dynasty for you. And so God reminds, begins in verse 8 by reminding David that he had taken him from the sheepfold, from among the sheep, and that he had prospered him, that he had done, uh, he had blessed him, he had made his name great upon, upon the earth. Um, and then he says down in verse 13, he says, um, or let's start in verse 12, uh, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, that is your descendant, physical descendant, after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So this is a reference to Solomon, indicating that this kingdom now is going to, in terms of the immediate succession, is going to come from David, and it goes, uh, we know, from through Solomon. Says he shall build a house for my name. That's referring to the temple. Solomon built the temple, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now this is uh, the idea establishes the principle of this eternal kingdom. So the throne of his kingdom indicates his authority. Uh, verse fourteen: I will be his father; he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I'll chasten him with the rod of men, with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, uh, whom I removed from before you. And your house, verse sixteen: Your house, that is the dynasty, and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. That's the key verse. So you have this eternal dynasty and eternal kingdom promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the foundation for everything that comes later. You have David mentioning this many times in the Psalms and other other writers mentioning this in the Psalms. You have it mentioned by the prophets in their, in their predictions all through uh, both the major prophets uh, as well as the as well as the minor prophets. And so as they go through this, uh, this establishes the foundation for this rule of David. Now, the interesting thing is the debate that goes on today about whether David even existed. I don't know if any of you are familiar with this, uh, not within conservative Bible-believing um, uh, camps or within even orthodox uh, camps in, in, within Judaism, but there are many liberals you have among archaeologists, you have this uh, one group that's called uh, minimalists, and they believe that there's only a little bit of information in the Bible that's uh, really true. And then in between, you have another school that thinks that, well, there was a David, there might have been a Solomon, but, but they just had a little bitty uh, shepherd's village on a hill there in Jerusalem and it really didn't amount to much. And uh, so there's been, and then you have others who believe that there was, that the Bible is accurate, that there was a tremendous kingdom, uh, as the Bible describes under David and, um, uh, David and, and Solomon. And if you're interested in reading a little bit about this, the December issue 
that's out now of National Geographic has some pictures of this and has a uh, very interesting article on these debates that have been going on and some of the things that have been found for the last uh, 20 years or so. The school thought that uh, there really wasn't a David, has, has suffered some blows. There have been a couple of archaeological finds that have mentioned the house of David. Now, they're not uh, contemporaneous with David. They're from the next century or two down the road, but at least that validates the fact that the uh, uh, Jewish monarchy was the house of David. And then recently there's been some discoveries of uh, a copper mining and copper smelting, whatever, down in the area around a lot on a very large scale, which fits within the biblical picture of the Solomonic kingdom and its size. So this seems to suggest, at least archaeologically, that and uh, at the 9th, 10th century B.C., that there was some significant technology and mining and ore smelting going on in, um, uh, in Judah or in Judea. So that's something you can pick up and, and, and read. But we don't have any doubts as to whether or not David existed. Uh, we know the Bible is true and accurate, and archaeology has never found anything that disproves Scripture. It always validates it, just that archaeology is always going to be a limited, fragmented record, and you're not going to find uh, the kinds of things some people think you ought to find to validate the Bible. Uh, you'll find things related to the culture that confirms the picture uh, of the events in the Bible, and perhaps we may find something at some point that actually uh, refers to David or refers to a few of the other figures. We have some things that refer, of course, to the House of Omri, uh, the Moabite Stone, things of that nature. Those are a couple of centuries later. So anyhow, you have this is the foundation for understanding the future kingdom that God promised to Israel. As part of this, there's a prediction of a divine Messiah, the Mashiach, or the Anointed One. Now, there are several passages that talk about this, the one that that we've studied before is in Psalm 2.2. Psalm 2.2 is prophetic. It refers to a future event that will occur when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth, and it depicts all of the kingdoms on the earth. This is uh, in, aligned with the Antichrist uh, coming together in, in an alliance against uh, the Lord, that is Yahweh or God the Father, and against the Mashiach or the Anointed One. And so this is given in Psalm 2.2, this prediction of a future uh, Messiah. But often the Messiah is only referred to in terms of rulership and in terms of the Davidic covenant. For example, in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, which is a well-known prophecy uh, related to the Messiah, which is usually quoted at Christmas, uh, for unto us a child is born. Now, birth indicates the birth of, of a human being. Unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. The term son here is, indicates something that goes beyond simply a, a human. We pick up later on the phrase son of God, son of man, which this is an allusion to. And the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. And each of these terms are phrases that are used and applied only to God in the Old Testament. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Now, that is a mistranslation. The phrase Everlasting Father says, well, why is the Son called the Father? Well, he's not. Literally in the Hebrew, it means Father of Eternity. It's a phrase for describing the eternal one. So he, he is eternal. This child that is born, or a human, is going to be called Mighty God, the Eternal Father, or the Father of Eternity, or the Eternal One, and Prince of Peace, indicating that he is more than simply a human. He is true humanity, but also uh, pure deity. And then 9.7 talks about his government. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David 
and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So he is the one who's going to be divine and human, and he is a descendant of David and sits on David's throne. The second passage in Isaiah is in Isaiah 11.1 1 and also Isaiah 11.10. Uh, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So the stem of Jesse indicates that um, uh, the root of Jesse, this has been uh, somehow cut off, and then there's a restoration which is, occurs because the Old Testament uh, Davidic line gets basically uh, stunted there with the uh, Babylonian captivity, and then a branch grows out of those roots, which is a reference to the Messiah. And verse 10 says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to his people, for the Gentiles shall seek him. Now we see that this, this future kingdom isn't, doesn't just have a Jewish orientation, but it is also going to reach out to the Gentiles. Uh, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now that's the first eight points. Our time's up. Next time I'm going to come back to point nine and we'll start with the title Son of Man and go into Daniel chapter seven uh, in terms of how this views the giving of the kingdom uh, to the Messiah. So all of this helps us to just set the, set the uh, framework for understanding what happens in terms of um, the kingdom message that is emphasized by the apostles during the next uh, eight chapters in the book of Acts. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and just again to be reminded that the birth of Jesus was in fulfillment of prophecy and that this is an indication that um, this is not just something that happened, this is not just some human uh, invention, but that you have orchestrated history in such a way to bring about the birth of the Savior who was promised from uh, hundreds of years before that we might have uh, confidence in Jesus as our Savior, as the uh, promised Messiah, the Son of David, and that we also look forward to his future return when he will come and establish his kingdom. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.